This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at new or recent films and compares them to some classics of days gone by that you may or may not have heard of. And uh, this week uh, is our second week producing this show in self-isolation. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I write about film on my blog, Flaw in the Iris, at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're continuing with uh, a show that, like last week, a theme that will lift our spirits in these rather dark times and this gloomy self-quarantine that we're all under. We're going to take a look at some comedies, some new, some old, some classic, some perhaps forgotten. And hopefully you will find something in this show to give you a laugh because we could all use one right now. Stephen, it's great to talk to you again uh, here on Lens Me Your Ears, the 99th episode of our podcast about film and uh we're talking about comedy today and you know comedy is one of those genres where it's so subjective i don't think i've had more arguments about film about whether a film's good or not uh around any subject outside more so than in comedy and i think it's because everyone just has a different thing that makes them laugh and and i also think that comedy is one of those genres that it doesn't age very well. A lot of older comedies just don't stand up anymore. Um, but you know what? Uh, I, I still enjoy going back to try and check them out and see if there's something there that uh, that still still tickles the funny bone. Um, and uh, yeah, and you know, it's funny. We went back and went specifically on streaming services because we want to be able to offer suggestions. And pretty much these days, you know, no one's going to the cinema, so finding comedies on streaming ones we had either hadn't seen in a long time or maybe had never seen and always wanted to see and what's funny is we chose comedies that are all sort of subgenre comedies they're not laugh out loud uh mainstream they're all either tragic comedies or you know horror comedies or political <laughs> comedies it's like i i noticed that there the trend if there is amongst the you know, six or seven movies we're going to talk about is that they are all a little bit left of center. Yeah, there's there's no laugh out loud riots here. There's no Marx Brothers on on, on our list today, uh, and uh, conversely, no Adam Sandler. On this uh, <laughs> going from the sublime to the ridiculous, I guess. Uh, yeah, we we picked films that are sort of tangentially or tangentially comedies, uh, and and definitely have things to laugh at, but also have some things to think about some some perhaps a little more meat than than your average comedy in in some ways and uh, and, I, and I love that I love that it's a, such a versatile genre that can be adapted to uh, to so many different uses whether it's a satire or a farce or what have you comedy is a pretty big world a pretty big uh, playpen to play around in uh, for filmmakers who are trying to maybe deliver a message with a bit of a twist to it. And uh, I, th I think a lot of these films do that uh, for the most part very well. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Um, now, the first one on our list, and we're going chronologically here uh, to where they were uh, released or when they were released, um, is Billy Liar. Now, Billy Liar is a film I think I sort of knew about uh, from the sort of mid-60s uh, British New Wave, if you will, um, from British director John Schlesinger, who went on to direct a number of films we've spoken about on Lens Me Your Ears, including Midnight Cowboy, Sunday Bloody Sunday, and Marathon Man. Um, 
this story is about the day in the life of a young clerk, William Fisher, living in Bradford or Leeds or one of those Yorkshire towns who dreams of bigger things for himself. He imagines he's a huge success in his own sort of country of the imagination. Uh, and uh, he's, he's a political leader or he's a general or he's a war hero. And he's very much the kind of secret life of Walter Mitty, which I gather that the book and play that this film is based on were inspired by that story. Um, and he lives with his parents and his grandmother and he works in an office of a firm that arranges funerals and he aspires to write for a, a successful comedian from London who's visiting the city even though he's clearly never spoken to the guy, even though he tells everyone he has. And, and this is the thing about this this character that, that struck me, um, that... Uh, you know, the, Walter Mitty was more or less a harmless nebbish, while Fisher, William Billy Fisher, Billy Liar, uh, is he's actively deceitful. Like he's lying <laughs> yes. to his parents, he's lying to his employer. He's there's two women, both of whom think they're engaged to him, and he's borrowed a ring from one of them and given it to the other, and it's all played for laughs until it clearly isn't. I think I found Billy a really nasty piece of work, and there's a darkness here. That uh, that I found a little hard to take, and um, you know, and especially, I mean, it is a dark comedy, I suppose, but but uh, I found it hard to warm up to uh, to Billy Liar, even though he's really well well acted from a Tom Courtney, who uh, I've seen in many films since. This is probably the youngest I've ever seen him on film, and apparently Albert Finney was supposed to take the role. He originated it on stage, but I guess Schlesinger wanted. Courtney, who is, I guess, a little less physically imposing. Um, so what did you make of the movie, Stephen? Well, this wasn't my first time watching Billy Liar, and I, I've always been very fond of this film, realizing going in that, of course, he, he his fantasy world does have harmful side effects for those around him, his family members and the two women in his life, or the three women in his life, as we meet uh, Julie Christie kind of partway through the film, a, a longtime friend of his who probably relates to him better than anybody else that he knows. Uh, and I find that uh, because Courtney's performance is is so solid and so vivid that that maybe the character gets a pass in some ways. Uh, and I, I guess that's the whole kitchen sink aspect of the film. I mean, most of the films from this period weren't really comedies. Uh, they were comic elements, of course, uh, but, uh, but there was that, that whole sort of gritty working class aspect of them to kind of keep them down to earth so so this is an interesting entry in that uh, early 60s british angry young man kind of uh, kind of world of film because uh it does have that fantasy element and and uh and the the satiric element to it which is uh, which makes it stand out a little bit uh you're right that he's not very sympathetic but it's I guess the the interest here is watching him get in, you know, dig these holes even deeper, and then try to wiggle his way out of them. Usually, not terribly successfully. Uh, I, it'd be interesting to see Finney in this role, but I, I think Courtney seems more like a dreamer and more like someone who would, you know, try to use his his wiles and his imagination to try and get out of these situations. But it inevitably, just kind of makes them worse. Um, and of course, Julie Christie is a marvel in this film. It's pretty early in her career, and and she really does light up the film. And when she appears, she's not, you know, she's kind of second build, I think, in the film. But she she's really kind of more of a side character who becomes more important to the film as it goes along. But uh, I I just uh, I, I love the fantasy elements of the film, and uh, and I love Courtney's performance 
and it is it is kind of cringy in a, in a way maybe it's kind of like an early version of curb your enthusiasm uh in a way and that he's you know not necessarily supposed to be likable but but you get something out of these comic situations that he digs himself into yeah the um uh sort of connection between him and the other people are in his life you know these individual conversations and scenarios that he plays out and you can see him sort of trying to lie his way to some kind of of you know uh way through like how is he going to get out of these situations that he's clearly dug himself into holes and you know some of that is fun and i guess some of it when he's on his own and he lets his his uh sort of fantasy life takeover that stuff is is pretty great like there's a scene in in the office where he's trying to build up the courage to to um leave his job with his uh the funeral director and uh there's a moment there that's very funny where the funeral director walks in on him as he's he's basically cawing like a bird um and uh uh leonard rossiter plays the uh funeral director who i recognize from he was in king rat but mostly i think from 2001 a space odyssey uh and and and, barry uh, linden yeah, yeah. So uh, one of uh, Stanley Kubrick's favorites, clearly. Um, but uh, yeah, it was nice to see him again. And you were right about Julie Christie. You know, she shows up in the first hour just as an introduction as she's walking through the streets. And apparently that was sort of shot guerrilla guerrilla filmmaking style because uh, there's a lot of reaction on the street to her wandering through. At that point, she was already a bit of a star. And, uh, and you know, uh, people on the locals were checking her out as she walked by. But um we only really see her that one time, and then she vanishes for most of the first hour. And then she shows up at later, and it, it seems that clearly she's kind of the perfect partner for Billy. She's someone who is also a bit of a free spirit, but she really lives that life. You know, she she moves from place to place, and uh, when she suggests that they go to London, then it's up to him to actually enact his dreams, and then that becomes that moment, which I won't spoil for people who haven't seen it, but, you know, what will he do when he gets the opportunity to leave all this stuff behind that he really he isn't interested in? And uh, I also wanted to say I really like this sort of black and white cinematography. It's a really gorgeous looking film. Um, and it, it really depicts that there things happening in his town. They're changing. Things are being torn down. New buildings are being built. There's this feeling of progress and, uh, and a generational shift. And, and that's sort of the background of the film, too, which I liked. Yeah, I, I do like that snapshot of this time in, in Britain. It's it was it came out in 1963, but obviously it was filmed, you know, bef- just before that, just before Beatlemania, just before Swinging London, just before everything changed in England um, in, in a massive sort of cultural tidal wave, if you will. And and this film captures kind of youth culture just at that moment before everything kind of kind of changed so i think it's kind of valuable in in that way and uh you know and 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 billy fisher does seem like a a modern young man like it it is interesting to think of how he might have you know moved his life forward had he just stuck to his guns and actually knuckled down and done some work as opposed to coming up with excuses and trying to take the easy way out all the time and it's 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 interesting if he chained that uh ambition and imagination to some actual uh elbow grease i guess what you know what what could be it would have been interesting to see what might have happened with this character down the road and as as i mentioned right before we started taping there was a tv sitcom version based on this character in the early 70s i'm not sure where it took the character but it'd be i'd be curious to see it at any rate but um 
the other thing I was thinking about, uh, and we we texted uh, about this briefly, that uh, Billy Fisher is is kind of similar to uh, to John Voight's character in in uh, Midnight Cowboy, in that uh, you know he comes to New York with a bunch of dreams, and he's got this kind of inflated sense of himself and and he's just kind of met with a lot of disappointment and some horrible situations i just i thought like i felt like like joe buck in midnight cowboy directed by john schlesinger of course same director um it's kind of like an american small town version of uh billy liar but with perhaps a little more theatricality and more tragic results in so many ways Mm -hmm. yeah and uh he actually enacts some of his dreams although it doesn't necessarily work out for him um now billy liar is on canopy which is of course the free streaming service that is available through uh libraries many places including here in halifax uh if you have a halifax libraries card you can uh access canopy you can watch five movies a month and they have a terrific selection like from really interesting films from around the world um and uh Coincidentally, another film that we uh, we wanted to talk about today also stars Julie Christie. wasn't really part of the plan, but but it seemed like uh, like a worthwhile thing to do. I mean, frankly, Julie Christie has had one of the great careers in film, and uh, she was in Shampoo, which is actually not available on Canopy, but found it on CTV on their streaming service, which unfortunately includes commercials, which is a bit of a drag, but otherwise it is available for free. Uh, Shampoo from 1975 is uh, is a, a really interesting comedy. Again, sort of a tragic comedy. Uh, Warren Beatty is George, a Hollywood hairdresser with a large group of female heads, as he calls them. Those are his customers. And when we meet him, he's having sex with one of his married customers, Felicia, played by Lee Grant. But his girlfriend calls, and her name is Jill, and that's played by Goldie Hawn. Uh, she calls him in a panic, so he rides his motorcycle over to see her. And that's what basically the pacing of the film is established from the get-go. Uh, all taking place over a day or so with George hopping from bed to bed. Now, when he runs into his ex-girlfriend, Jackie, that's Julie Christie, she's the mistress of a money man, Lester, played by Jack Warden. And Lester might wind up investing in George's business. George wants to have his own salon. Now, Lester's wife is Felicia, played by Lee Grant. I don't know if you're keeping track of all this, <laughs> but all circle. of these characters, yes, all these characters are uh, basically cheating on each other in one way or another. And this is against the backdrop of election night 1968. This is one of the most interesting things about the film. Shampoo, coming out in 1975, is set seven years earlier. And it makes me wonder sort of what this perspective of it is it's it's strangely a period piece but it's so the past is is so recent um and all these people end up at the same election party and it gets very awkward and deeply peculiar and julie christie gets maybe the best line of the film which um given that this uh (laughs) this podcast is broadcast on ckdu i can't actually say it uh, on the air, but uh, <laughs> there are other parties, and we get some counterculture satire, and we get some basically, you know, a look back at the, um, uh, the you know, the the counterculture, not the summer of love, but the summer after the summer of love, and uh, it's 
it's an interesting sort of dark approach, I think, to what was going on. And I think maybe a fairly clear-eyed approach as well. It's like so much had changed since the 60s by the time that this film was made that they could actually set their story back a few years earlier and have a few things to say about what was going on then. Uh, what did you make of it, Steve? Well, it's kind of funny how it's from 75 and yet it's sort of a period piece about a period you know, seven years before, like, I, I feel yeah, like yeah. right now, if you made a film right now and said it's seven years in the past, you know, you wouldn't have to change a whole lot. Like, you know, it's not that styles and music and things have changed all that much in seven years, but I, I feel like shampoo is a little weird in that, in that uh, sense, because I don't feel like it doesn't really feel like 1968 for some reason. I mean, they do throw in some older songs and things like that, but, but uh, I think God only knows by the beach boys turns up and some other things but uh it, it feels weirdly out of time like i know when it's supposed to be taking place but it still feels like a very 70s movie i feel like they didn't go out of their way to make it seem like 1968 and somehow it works anyway i mean it's just because yeah. we, we've got a script by robert town and w- working with warren Beatty and and hal ashby directing um you know just a, a bunch of stars of that decade at the top of their game really and uh, and I, I don't mind it so much, but it, I, it's one thing that I mean, I, I haven't this is my I'm revisiting this film for the first time in decades. I have not seen it in a long, long time. And, uh, you know, I, I'm amazed at how well I can just look past some of the anachronistic aspects of it. Um, and I, I get the feeling that people at the time it came out in 75 weren't too bothered by it either because of the acclaim and the success this film had. But it it has this relentless energy you know it's it's it doesn't really lag anywhere along the line as 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 george uh, is running from from you know from the salon to a client's home to between three different lovers and at one point uh, we have a young carrie fisher in her first screen role as uh, felicia and lester's daughter um for another bit of romantic intrigue um that is that that kind of makes this film stand out and uh, yeah, I just, I just, I'm endlessly fascinated by this film and and the many kind of twists and turns that it takes us through until we get to that party where everything just kind of comes to a head. Yeah, you know, you're right about Hal Ashby being. I mean, his style was very '70s influenced. But what makes me laugh, I think, and I, I gotta think this was intentional. The irony of watching this from this this movie. Uh, 45 years later is how terrible Warren Beatty's hair is. <laughs> like he's making his living as a, as you know, in a hair salon and uh, his hair is just terrible. This huge mass of, of, of cloudy, you know, hair. It's just, and, and a lot of the women he works on, they have terrible hair too. And maybe that's just, you know, style. It's a, maybe it's a joke about style. I, I don't even know. I'm not even sure. It, it's a little hard to say exactly what some of those decisions were at the time. Um, but uh, yeah, it's great seeing young Carrie Fisher. I guess she was like 18 uh, playing. Well, she might, you might say she's precocious uh, <laughs> a character who clearly hates her mother. And uh, one other thing about the, that struck me about these characters is, uh, you know, George, who is, having a lot of sex and he's living this kind of crazy intense you know lifestyle but he's he's not very happy and neither is anybody else you know they're all looking for something that they're not getting in their lives and they have a lot of privilege and a lot of 
satisfaction and you know but george wants to have i guess he wants to be a little more settled down he doesn't this whole crazy you know um playboy kind of thing he's got going on it's just uh it's not working for him and uh and that's what ends up being kind of sadly heartbreaking when he finally comes sort of comes to his senses and he realizes that you know he's criticizing the women around him who have who, for sleeping for uh, with other with men for money but in some ways he's doing sort of the same thing and uh and when he finally realizes that it's it's sort of too late for him and uh and it's uh it's yeah it winds up being very bittersweet at the end uh in a way that uh that really surprised me for a film that is basically marketed as a comedy and there are some really funny moments it's uh it's pretty bleak yeah, it, well, that's that's the seventies for you. <laughs> and, I mean, and, and Hal Ashby, you know, made these comedies. You look at films like Being There and and uh, Harold and Maude and and The Landlord. You know that that are you know they're all bittersweet. They're all comedies. He seemed to like making people laugh, but but he also liked to twist the knife a little bit because because uh, apparently life is not a comedy. <laughs> and, uh, and and uh, that's uh, you know that's kind of the side he came down on. But uh, you know I, th- I think he had a real affection for his characters. But he also you know he also he also really put a lot of emphasis on making them true to life in a lot of ways. And and uh, I always wonder like this is this film's from '75. I'm guessing that they're viewing 1968 through the lens of Watergate. Um, you know, which of course had been going on around that time. And and I don't I don't want to talk about maybe loss of innocence or anything like that, because of course Vietnam had also been going on for a few years. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's kind of what it feels like he's trying to get at is about the country's, you know, kind of losing its, I don't know, it's post Kennedy, uh, innocence, I suppose, um, through the, this microcosm of Beverly Hills. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the really fascinating thing about this film is how much you can, you can, or don't have to read into the storyline. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, anyway, full marks to uh, Julie Christie for being such a great screen presence. She's so good in everything that she's in. And also full marks to uh, Warren Beatty, who, you know, uh, super ambitious filmmaker and actor and leading man for so many years. Um, He he can play a dumb guy really well. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he can play someone who's very incisive and brilliant. And I think he is actually probably pretty pretty much a a, a very sharp dude uh, he's kind of an enigma in, in many respects when you look at the films he made and and the films he starred in but uh and of course his reputation again as a ladies man uh so to speak uh through his uh, bachelor years but um but wow you know he he really is great at playing someone who's a little bit out of depth and of course i speak as a big fan of ishtar the film he yes. made with dustin hoffman and elaine may where he is so thick and he's got a little bit of that here as as george and uh and it's it's just great to see welcome back to lends me your ears the film podcast that looks at new and recent films ostensibly in theaters or on streaming and then compares them to films from days gone by that you may or may not have heard of of course with theaters closed at the moment we're uh, we're kind of improvising here on lens me your ears as karsten knox my co-host and i record from different locations and hopefully combine them through the technological wonders of uh, audacity and uh, and so we're, we're trying to come up with some subjects that might help 
lift our spirits a little bit as we're all kind of living in uh, in self-isolation and waiting for the curve to flatten in the middle of this pandemic. So today we're looking at comedies and we're just kind of kind of freewheeling it through uh, through the decades. We started in the 60s with Billy Lyre and then into the 70s with another comedy featuring Julie Christie, Shampoo. And now we're uh, we're going into the 80s with Into the Night from 1985, a comedy directed by John Landis, starring Jeff Goldblum and Michelle Pfeiffer, and uh, an incredible array of cameos by uh, filmmakers and friends of Landis and uh, other assorted uh, showbiz personalities scattered throughout this movie that uh, make it a kind of jaw-dropping to watch it now, to just to see the people that agreed to, to be in it, even just for one scene or... Or you know a couple of lines of dialogue. It, it must have uh, must have taken a fair bit of effort to get everybody on board in uh, in what is, for the most part, a fairly standard Hitchcockian thriller kind of plot. But um, but you know, I'll take I'll take uh, Bush League Hitchcock any day since we don't have the real thing around anymore and 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 landis directs this film with a with a fair bit of energy and audacity as uh, jeff goldblum plays a uh, an aerospace engineer whose life is uh, is really in the toilet his wife is cheating on him he hates his job and uh he he just uh, he just doesn't know where he's going in life he's, he's falling asleep at meetings he's got insomnia um and he has this idea that maybe he'll just fly to Vegas one night, have a, have a one night stand and then fly home when he can't sleep. And I guess you can do that in California, just, uh, be in and out of, of Vegas overnight. And while he's at the airport, he sees a, a young woman played by uh, Michelle Pfeiffer, who's being, um, harassed by, I guess at first you think they're terrorists, but I guess they're Iranian secret service or something like that. And, uh, she's got something that they're looking after and, he basically gets her into his car and they escape the the Iranians, which include John Landis as, as one of one of the agents for some reason. And uh, and what follows afterwards is just a, a, a fairly crazy chase across Los Angeles in uh, in hopes of getting these gems back, the, the MacGuffin of these gems. And, and it's just a, an excuse to have this fairly broad canvas that gives you this you know, wide portrait of the city and also allows uh, Landis and uh, his screenwriter Ron Coslow to drop in these outrageous characters at various points along the story. So it's 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 really just uh, kind of a thrill ride with these, you know, these these oddball moments featuring familiar faces. But with Jeff Goldblum still uh, still very appealing in 1985 and and young Michelle Pfeiffer as the woman who's dragging him further and further into this uh, into this uh, you know, intractable situation. Uh, they're both very appealing and they're a big part of why this is so watchable, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, Ed, you know, he, he lives in a house underneath an overpass in suburban Los Angeles and he, he just, he can't sleep and then he discovers his wife is having this affair. I, you know, the funny, the opening 20 minutes of this movie could almost be a David Lynch movie. There's yes. there's a shot of Ed standing outside his house uh, the bedroom window watching his wife have sex with another man. That's like a portrait of existential dread, like an <laughs> Edward Hopper painting. And then that synth and sax laden oh, yes. BB King score kicks in. And it, that's like the real in my mind. And I guess from having grown up and watched a lot of movies from the eighties, that's the real sound of Los Angeles. It's funny how 
it's sort of laid under the action and Landis seems to use it more as a scene transition when when we hear that guitar sound that Lucille guitar sound from BB King um, and uh, yeah it, it's a film that I've revisited a lot over the years and I, I, I guess this is the first time that Goldblum had his name above the title wow. and he's an odd he's an odd choice I mean he'd been a you know supporting cast in a variety of things previously but on paper I think he's kind of an odd choice in terms of I, you know, I think it speaks more to John Landis's power as a filmmaker at that point. He could do pretty much anything he wanted. And I know that originally he thought of Jack Nicholson for the role. And he gave Nicholson the script and Nicholson passed on it because he didn't like how the lead character basically has so little power in his in, in – his, he, he has a problem, but he doesn't really solve it. He just kind of goes along for the ride. Um, and then when Gene Hackman agreed to do it, the studio didn't want Hackman because his last couple of movies had underperformed at the box office. But uh, one of the producers of this film had a big hit with The Big Chill a couple of years earlier, and he started to pitch to Landis actors from The Big Chill. And he, he suggested Kevin Kline, he suggested Tom Berenger, and Landis, you know, all right, I'll look at them, I'll look at them. But he wasn't convinced, and then he... <laughs> But when he saw Jeff Goldblum, he's like, oh, this guy's got something. I don't know what it is, but I really like him. And uh, and then when he, he tested Goldblum with Michelle Pfeiffer, um, they had this chemistry. And I guess he had also thought about Jamie Lee Curtis going to be the female lead. But then she had decided to do Perfect. That's the John yes. Travolta film. And so uh, Pfeiffer had... Uh, came in and i guess really hit it out of the park so uh it wind up being you know goldblum and pfeiffer and uh and it's funny because into the night didn't do that well at the box office in the uh in north america it did a lot better in europe but um you know it's still kind of become a cult film in some ways and as you mentioned all those cameo roles we i think landis has a habit of casting directors in small acting parts and here he's got david cronenberg and it's funny Cronenberg, maybe this is where Cronenberg met Goldblum and thought, oh, this guy might be good for the fly. Um, and Daniel Petrie is here as the TV director and makeup wizard Rick Baker as a yes. drug dealer. Um, <laughs> other prominent directorial names with walk-on parts include Jonathan Lynn, Paul Bartel, Paul Mazursky, Jack Arnold, Don Siegel, Jim Henson, and even Amy Heckerling. Oh, and Roger Vadim as the, uh, the French gangster. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan apparently has a small part, and Jonathan Demme as a G-man at the end. Um, and, of course, Carl Perkins shows up, uh, and famously David Bowie, who, uh, I guess, this one scene that Perkins and Bowie are having a knife fight <laughs> with Abbott Costello playing in the background, uh, and, and the parrots in the room are Larry, Cur Moe, and Curly. I mean, there's all these strange Hollywood you know levels to this which makes if you know all these people i think it makes it all that much more more fun really. oh yeah that's that's definitely the multi-layered aspect of watching this film and and i mean you can go through the imdb list and see the amazing array of people that show up in this film but i think part of the fun is watching it and trying to figure out who certain people are um uh, and it's, it's amazing who shows up even for just split seconds in this film and uh, I, I believe John Landis did the same thing in Beverly Hills Cop 3 which I have to say I've not seen but I I, I hear it has a, a similar array of yeah neither have I and, uh, sort of amazing cameos but thankfully I think the film is better than that anyway yeah. it's not just yeah, a, yeah. a stunt film with all these roles for 
famous directors and bit parts and stuff. We also get Dan Aykroyd showing up as his uh, as yeah. uh, Ed Oaken's uh, workplace pal uh, Herb. Uh, you know, kind of an underwritten small part, but but it's fun to see Aykroyd show up for for a brief period in this film. Yeah, yeah, and Richard Farnsworth in the end, who is a welcome presence in any movie. It's funny, you know, I just saw Gray Fox the oh, other a day for film. the first time, and he was so good in that. Um, but uh, there are moments that Into the Night reminded me about of uh, a movie we've talked about here on the show, uh, Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Yes, uh, you know, similar. there's a guy, sort of a guy stuck in this nocturnal situation where he just doesn't, he can't get out of it, uh, and a weird sort of fish out of water story. Uh, and then there's that sort of 80s connections in the fashion and the makeup and the decor um, is very, very 80s. Um, so we should mention that Into the Night yes. is available on Hoopla. Uh, it's also available on demand if you want to pay for it. But Hoopla is free, another library service. Um, and uh, also available now on another film on Canopy, that other library service we mentioned earlier, is In the Soup. That's from 1992. Now, I had never seen it. And I just plucked it out of just seeing it. I, I, I like uh, Steve Buscemi. He's the lead. It's Alexandra Rockwell's uh, film. And uh, it's a story of Adolfo Rollo, who is a pretty lame on-screen pseudonym, I guess. This is a very um, autobiographical film, I imagine, uh, about uh, a guy. He's a New York screenwriter and painter who's struggling to get by, living in a crappy apartment. Who And he's got a crush on his neighbor, Angelica played by Jennifer Beals, um, who was actually married to Rockwell at the time. Um, and this is one of those sort of gritty, black-and-white, indie American films from the era, from the early 90s, inspired by the French New Wave, popular with Jim Jarmusch, who also shows up, speaking of director's <laughs> acting, he shows up in this briefly, uh, who, and he says he's the one who remarks that Buscemi looks like Don Knotts, which I've always thought, actually, that they have some... Buscemi and Don Knotts have a, have a weird similarity. Uh, and then Carol Kane also is there, and she's great. Uh, this is one of those films that I don't think quite ex- escapes its its time and place. It's a... Uh, it, I mean, you know, it's it's... It's very self-conscious, and I think that's part of the approach of the filmmaker who is sort of commenting on his struggles to get a film made, and and uh, Adolfo narrates and explains what kind of movie he wants to make as we sort of watch and realize we're seeing the movie that he wants to make, um, just in terms of style, and uh, it's a shaggy dog quality, which I appreciate, but I don't know if it necessarily, uh, it necessarily transcends its era, Um uh, but you know it's it's worth seeing and and i i guess i really also like seeing stanley tucci who is all also always welcome though his french accent is uh is how do you say outrageous <laughs> yes well i i have a fondness for this film probably because i i saw i saw it for the first time at the um uh at the toronto international film fest when it opened and uh and it was just it was just a fun film to see at that time in 1992 that was the same year that reservoir dogs first appeared so i got to see reservoir dogs when nobody had a clue about this film uh it was it was amazing watching it completely cold and uh and not knowing what that would launch um and it's there were there were a lot of similar films to in the soup that year i remember um there was a film called uh laws of gravity a feature by a guy named nick gomez who uh, has done a lot of great stuff in television. Uh, his only other feature of note that I can think of off the top of my head is New Jersey Drive, um, 
which is a pretty good crime caper stolen car film. Uh, but he's done most of his stuff in television. Um, but that was also black and white and about these kind of self-conscious kind of characters, although with even more, you know, more of a crime story layered in, whereas, uh, Seymour Cassell's Joe in this film, he's, he's really a low level criminal pulling out these weird little scams and, and deals to, to put some money into this, uh, into this movie. And it, it feels like he's just kind of, he's just kind of bored. He has a knack for these, you know, these various criminal activities, but no idea, you know, what to do with the money or whatever, other than try and live large. And maybe being a movie producer will make him feel important or feel like he's accomplished something or whatever. And it, it, it's a great performance. I mean, I, I, I'd seen Cassell in a few things uh, back when I first saw this film uh, in 92, but I've certainly seen him in more stuff since then. He of course was a favorite actor of John Cassavetes, you know, a highly skilled improviser in that school. And I think that probably puts him in good stead here. Cause I get the feeling there's a lot of off the cuff stuff happening in, in, in the soup. And uh, I, I just love this weird friendship that develops between uh, Cassell's Joe and Buscemi's Adolfo Rolo. Although I do feel like uh, another, a, a slightly better film with Buscemi as a put upon independent filmmaker is probably living in oblivion from a few years later, um, which uh, was directed by Tom DeSillo. Uh, I, I, I really recommend tracking that one down if you can. It's, it's a great Buscemi performance as well. But, uh, but yeah, this, this film does have a shaggy dog quality. It does feel like, uh, a film of its time, but uh, but it, it, it's full of unexpected surprises and uh, and lots of, of 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 fun moments and and I do like that friendship and it's fun to see people like Sam Rockwell who is not related to the director. I had to look that up, but uh, apparently I, th- I thought maybe he was in so many Alexandra Rockwell films because they're related somehow, but it turns out they're not. It's just a weird coincidence. Um, uh, and uh, Debbie Mazar shows up. Stanley Tucci uh, has a small role, a very funny scene where he has to try and break into his own apartment, which is next door to Steve Buscemi's. And uh, and I just love that feeling of desperation that Buscemi seems to be operating in at all times in this film as he just wants to make his movie and uh, isn't quite sure what he has to sacrifice in order to be able to do that. So uh, and, and the black and white cinematography of it is, is, is pretty fantastic as well. I, I have to say, like we watched this on, uh, on Canopy, and uh, I, I have mixed feelings about a lot of streaming services, especially when I have to hook a laptop up to a TV set and through an HDMI cable and kind of hope for the best. But the, the films that I watched on Canopy, I, I was fairly pleased with the quality, and uh, I felt like the, you know, the cinematography and the, just the, the, the quality of the film itself was preserved pretty well. In, uh, in watching it through this service. So I, I certainly will be looking forward to watching more titles. And of course, with no commercial interruption, unlike some other, like you mentioned, CTV and so on, um, that sometimes get imposed on these films. So we're going to talk about the death of Stalin now on Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast. And uh, Death of Stalin is available on Canadian Netflix as we speak. It's directed by Armando Iannucci, who uh, I guess I, I'm not sure when I first uh, was introduced to his work, but uh, you know he's someone who has had a lot of success uh, in British TV series like uh, I Am uh, Alan Partridge and The Thick of It, which became the film In the Loop. And then he found a lot of uh, success over in American TV with Veep. 
and uh, he is clearly the master of political comedy in a, sort of an, a weird approach to, to it, I guess, an unusual approach. And uh, one thing uh, first right off that I loved about the death of Stalin is the fact that uh, he does away with that Hollywood conceit that when English language actors uh, are sort of set up in films that are supposedly taking place in foreign lands, whether they are historically accurate or not, they speak in accented English, right? All these actors should be speaking, you know, with a Russian accent, and that is not what is happening here, and I love <laughs> that. This is supposedly set in 1953 Russia, uh, yeah, in Moscow, and uh, these British and American actors, this is a, in a multi, uh, you know, a, a, a cast of, of actors, character actors from around the world, and they should all be speaking with Russian accents, and they just don't. So that I loved. Um, I really love that, speaking of Steve Buscemi, uh, his Brooklynese is right up there next to Michael Palin's friendly Brit, and they're both playing historical Russians, and that doesn't matter at all. Um, and, you know, maybe it's because it's a comedy. Ianucci figures he can get away with it. But, um, yeah, I uh, I think this is this should be the way we we make films going forward, whether it's a comedy or not. Uh, and basically, the story is a look at the end of Stalin's regime after he dies unexpectedly and the struggle for power following his death. And this is not material you expect to inspire big laughs, but it very much succeeds. And I would say that of all the movies we're talking about today, Stephen, on Lens Me Your Ears, this is the one that made me laugh the most. Yes, um, I would say that's true. And uh, it's the... The just mining humor out of the fear that Stalin inspired and then by the ravenous power struggle that immediately followed. Um, there is great, there are terrific lines of dialogue and great moments of physical comedy. Um, you know, the appalling violence and absence of human rights is sort of a weird springboard for the playful, irreverent, if, if very dark gags. Um, and it doesn't skimp on historical detail and sets and locations or costumes. Uh, I mean, if it wasn't so outrageously funny, I think it could be adjusted to suit a dramatic uh, approach. But uh, yeah, what did you make of the film, Stephen? I, 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 first of all, I like what you said about the accents, and uh, I did a bit of reading up on that. And uh, even even though they're speaking with uh, British accents for the most part, um, except for of course, uh, I guess Jeffrey Tambor and Steve Buscemi are not. But uh, they tried to make the accent or the actor kind of fit the background of of the character. For example, so Jason Isaacs, who shows up and is hilarious, uh, mm, you know, he's so it, good. He's so good, and and I'm trying to. Th- I'm pretty sure I've seen him do comedy before, but most people probably think of him, you know, as playing. I think he played Captain Hook in a Peter Pan movie, and he was, uh, of course, in the Harry Potter films. It's mm-hmm. one of the evil wizards, but but his he, he he has a I believe kind of a working class Yorkshire accent, and and because Field Marshal Zukov, who's a very key figure in the plot that goes into effect later in the film. Um, would have been from a working class background originally, or or maybe a, a farming background, and uh, and that would have suited his character. So even though it's a British accent, it's an appropriate one to the kind of background that he had. So there was there they were still kind of playing off, you know, because obviously Michael Palin's Molotov was a more of an intellectual, and more and of course you know Palin having been to I think Cambridge. Um, I mean, was it Oxford? Anyway, one of those two, you know, is definitely a more educated uh, comic actor, and he's well suited to playing that particular role. And, uh, and just the, 
so so there's a there's a lot of thought going into the the satire yeah. here. I yeah, I appreciate that. Actually, now that you point it out, it does make sense. And actually, that is uh, that is an approach I can get behind. Uh, anyway, I think that works a lot better than the the weird accents, especially when occasionally they will hire actors from those places. Like if they had hired some Russian actors to speak English, then it would have been just it would have been very weird and distracting. The uh, the adherence to so to the historical fact is is interesting because I think they tried to be very accurate about some stuff and then also sort of bend time and compress events in the interest of sort of dramatic urgency in, in other cases. So it's it's interesting to, to hear about what what elements of the film are, are more or less true and others that were kind of, uh, you know, more conveniently changed to, to suit either the the tone of the film or, or the progression of the plot. And uh, Iannucci has said that there were certain things in reality that would have seemed too ridiculous for this comedy. That The fact that, like, Zukov probably wore way more medals than he does here, even though he wears a crap load of medals uh, on his on his uh, uniform, that uh, compared to actual photos of the real Zukov, you can see that he wore an outrageous number of medals. And, and uh, early in the film, when they're trying to find a conductor um, to re-record uh, an orchestral piece that was broadcast live, which Stalin then wants a recording of, even though it was a live broadcast, the, the search for a conductor to redo it for a recording that night um, was even more crazy and, and uh, drawn out than what they could portray in the film. So th- there's lots of, uh, lots of aspects like that, that, uh, you know, if he told you the truth, you wouldn't believe it. So wow. uh, the, for some reason, the fallacy seems even more believable than what actually happened, but it, it's such a, a strange time in history that uh, we in the West only for the most part, sort of vaguely know about, uh, you know, the, the whole Stalin era is, you know, it, it, it took decades for the truth to come out about how, how, how horrific and, and how monstrous, uh, that whole period was. And I, I, I feel like, uh, this film kind of gives you an idea of that, but also making you laugh at the same time. I, maybe you could compare it to, um, to, uh, the recent, uh, uh, Taika Waititi uh, Hitler movie, <laughs> but oh uh, yeah, yeah, Jojo Rabbit, Jojo yeah, Rabbit, makes sense. Uh, which is a comedy with a sort of fantasy, imaginary friend version of Hitler, uh, which some people had problems with. But this is much darker and is a you know just as horrific a period in history, and yet uh, the humor works to to get this story across. Yeah, no, I agree, uh, and I hope uh, Inucci continues to make films like this. Um, you know, I've actually read that he has a film coming out in 2020. Of course, everything is is TBA in terms of uh, dates, uh, depending on when we get back into cinemas. But uh, it's it's the personal history of David Copperfield, which is a Dickens adaptation. So that'll be interesting to see. I, I've seen the trailer for it. It looks quite fascinating. In fact, I thought maybe at some point we would do a Dickens film show so i've actually started to watch some dickens films yeah, okay in hopes that some someday we'll be back in a movie theater watching the personal history of david copperfield as directed by uh armando iannucci so yes knock indeed on, knock on wood for that happening yeah so another film we watched that we should talk about it's on crave and that is in fabric and that is uh peter strickland's 
film, most recent film. This is the director of The Duke of Burgundy, which is a film I enjoyed for its sort of peculiar Baroque sensibility and and its uh, you know sort of interesting sexual politics. Um, but that film sort of skated past the broadly camp laughs that this follow-up wraps in its arms and gives a loving hug. This is a story of uh, Sheila, played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste, and she's a lonely 50-something divorcee living with her art school son who invites, and he tends to invite his girlfriend, Gwen, over for uh, their to their modest home on the regular. Gwen is played by an unrecognizable Gwendolyn Christie from Game of Thrones. Um, now, based on the fashions and the interstitial stills of magazine sales ads, I'd, I'm guessing this is set in the late 1970s. And uh, newspaper personals are still a thing, and Sheila is dating, looking for someone new in her life, and she buys the red dress and discovers that it was worn by a model who subsequently died, and the dress is haunted by an evil spirit. Uh, And this is basically the story, and it's very peculiar, it's very campy and very funny uh, and dark as it goes along. Now, strangely, the picture feels kind of like it's wrapping up about halfway in, and it turns a corner and and covers an entirely different character, uh, becomes the lead, a character named Reg Speaks, played by Leo Bill, who's a washing machine repair person about to get married, and his obnoxious buddies make him wear the red dress in question at a stag night, which is pretty bonkers and frequently hilarious. And... uh, and then it just gets more and more strange after that. Uh, thematically, I would call this a consumerist uh, satire in some ways, and maybe even a workplace satire, because the scenes between Sheila and her inquisitive micromanagers and Reg and his boss and even the ladies at the dress shop that sell the red dress and the ghoulish fellow that they work with, there's a lot of interesting workplace dynamic stuff going on here. Uh, you know, I, I, it's it's a really strange film, and I know that some people in my sort of film loving circle thought it was awful. <laughs> they just could not get into it. Fans of the Duke of Burgundy, in fact, um, thought this was a complete disaster. And I watched it, and I I, I chuckled a lot. I thought it was pretty funny. What yeah, did you I, think? I certainly wouldn't call it a disaster. I also like Strickland's uh, Berberian Sound Studio, which uh, I highly recommend. It's a it's a terrific film as well, uh, and I I, I find. These films, you know, they, they show a really interesting progression. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of a 70s Italian horror film uh, kind of stylistic choices being made in this film, which which I appreciate because that's that's a world of film that, you know, I certainly know some of the masters of of that world, like, like Dario Argento and Mario Bava. And I've started dipping my toe into some of the more uh, obscure or extreme uh, aspects of of italian horror and and clearly strickland is fascinated by that period because that seems to be what he's going for here there's obviously suspiria seems to be a big influence on this but but i but i also appreciate the fact that he's injecting this comedic tone into these horrific events that we're seeing maybe to to lighten the load a little bit i mean julian barrett from um from the mighty boosh as one of the micromanagers at her workplace at, uh, at Sheila's workplace, you know, is, is a clear indication that this is meant to be a comedy, even though it just gets, uh, you know, repellently horrific as it goes along. But yeah, I, I, I like the, the out of time feel of the film. Like you say, there's a lot of seventies 
stylistic choices, but then there's things that happen that feel more modern. And I, I think uh, I think Strickland wants to kind of keep you on your toes and not really think too hard about the time or the place that it's happening in as this uh, this crazy dress just wreaks this trail of havoc uh, along uh, to, you know, in the lives of everyone that it comes in contact with. Uh, it reminds me a bit, you know, maybe there's a bit of the red shoes in there as well. Um, you know, that certainly the, the, the color scheme would imply that. Uh, and yeah, I, I just liked watching this film, not knowing where it was going to go and, and, you know, having a couple of pretty extreme surprises along the way. Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, and I wanted to give a shout out to the woman who is, I guess, the lead um, a salesperson at that dress shop, played by Fatma Muhammad, who is a Romanian actor. And she is so good. She has this incredible diction where she has to say this outrageous <laughs> dialogue. Uh, <laughs> yeah, she's she's uh, maybe my favorite part of the film. Every time she's on screen, I was totally into it. Uh, I, I think it, it does wander. It meanders a little bit. Some of that is is less interesting but overall i uh i think if you have a particular disposition for you know an outrageous horror comedy you could do a lot worse than than in fabric uh in fact you could go and watch little monsters <laughs> which uh is on amazon prime right now uh steven you i was not a fan of this film uh, do you want to tell our our listeners what this one's about yeah i guess you don't have to dwell on this one too much i I, I liked it as kind of a shoddy Shaun of the Dead ripoff, which you uh, amusingly say that's giving it way too much credit. But uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I got to say I was drawn in by the images of Lupita Nyong'o, who's a, an actor that, uh, you know, I've, I've certainly grown to love uh, in her handful of appearances that we've had in recent years. And, and here she's saddled with the role of a, of a kindergarten teacher who's uh, takes takes her students on a field trip from hell as a zombie apocalypse breaks out uh, while they're visiting a petting zoo, uh, which also happens to be visited by an obnoxious children's TV entertainer played by Josh Gad, who uh, is an obnoxious children's entertainer uh, in the Frozen movies as the snowman. But um, and, and Alexander England plays uh, a, a dad and a failed musician who comes along for the ride as a chaperone. Uh, he's an actor most people won't know, but I, I know him from um, some uh, some Australian TV series that I've been watching. He's an actor I quite like. He's fairly obnoxious here. Cat uh, Stewart, who I also like from some of the same shows, um, is also good here as, as his sister, uh, whose uh, kid he's kind of uh, in charge of while these zombies are running amok in this petting zoo. And uh, yeah, it's... It's not great, <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, I'm a sucker for a, for a zombie movie with a bit of a satiric edge. And this, this, this has some of that, but, uh, like you say, it's, it's probably a little more a cheap thrill than, and a time waster than a, than a classic addition to the, the zombie genre. Yeah. And I didn't think it was terribly funny either. I mean, it's got, it's a weird combination of raunchy comedy sort of a wholesome romance and then zombie picture which works sporadically in each of these genres but i don't think it really coalesces. i really like nyongo and i think she's typically great here and she's a she's a dab hand with a shovel for beheading <laughs> um and you know the kids are cute i guess but uh and i guess some of the zombie makeup was actually pretty gross if you're into that kind of thing but uh ultimately i just felt like none of the different 
genre aspects work together. And Josh Gad's children's entertainer is so appalling. And I mean, I'm not a ter- particularly a fan of him his anyway. Oh, gosh. But no. at a certain point, he kind of goes crazy. And as the zombies are coming at him, he takes a bite out of a zombie child. And I'm just like, who is this movie for? Like, this isn't <laughs> funny. This is just this is just stupid. I just I just was like, like you know, this is a uh, I was like throwing popcorn at the screen kind of thing. Um, but uh, anywho, yeah, it's there. It's on Amazon Prime now if anybody wants to take the uh, the chance with it. Thank you so much for listening to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast. I have been Karsten Knox, film writer, and you are Stephen. I am Stephen. I, Stephen, <laughs> am Stephen Cook. And uh, I'm an arts writer at the Chronicle Herald, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm also on Twitter, uh, named after my blog, It's Flaw on the Iris. And of course, Lens Mirror Ears has a Twitter account as well. It's also on Facebook, and we have a Patreon account. If you'd care to send some shekels our way, we'd very much appreciate that to help support us as we do our rambling film talk every couple of weeks. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities when it's not a pandemic, but mostly for airing the show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for producing the show and adding the music and for all that they do. And I hope that you'll join us for our 100th episode of Lens Me Your Ears coming out very soon. Thanks again. See ya. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.